0: You may be seated. Well, my name is Trent Hunter. I'm a pastor here at Desert Springs Church. Welcome to the first Sunday after Christmas. It's sort of a lazy Sunday. It's why I'm wearing a tie. I'm overcompensating for you. Um, Christmas is where we celebrate, remember, and reflect on the birth of Jesus and take naps and watch movies. I hope that it was a relaxing week for you? When Christy and I get a break or a few few just wide open days, uh, we start clearing out bins and closets and gutting and posting things on Craigslist and taking them to Goodwill. Creates space for life. I recently found a TI-84 in a bin in our home. Who knows what a TI-84 is? Who uses a TI-84? Okay. I knew it was Christie's from high school because calculators would not survive more than 12 months in my backpack as a schoolboy, I would take them apart. I wondered how they were made and who thought them up. Had I started with something a little more simple or perhaps mechanical, maybe I would have taken an interest in a job in engineering or something. I would have hit the ceiling on my math skills very quickly. But I was mystified by these calculators. How did these things work? Who held the design plans for this? Of course, there are cooler things than calculators out there. One of you uh, gave me a tour of the factory that you run, not too far from here, where you make a part for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, and I will never stop asking for one of those parts. I had a space in my office for it, and it's waiting. One one breaks or something and has to be thrown out. I'll take it. Pencils are complex enough with their paint, their lead, their wood, eraser material, and the towns whose economies are supplied by the sale of these materials. How much more a jet? How much more a jet? It's a testament to the creativity, the hard work, and the sheer brilliance of human beings that we make these things. I am floored by what we can pull off. A design, of course, teaches us about the designer and many of us have considered this when examining the creation around us. We should all say with the psalmist, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. What God has made speaks about what God is like. But even more amazing than the world that God made, consider this, is the people that he made. No, we don't impress ourselves, but that we are all here is a very, very impressive thing. Harder to explain than anything in the universe is the church. It cannot be reverse engineered. It can only be revealed for what it is. We are his handiwork, a demonstration of God's glorious plans and power to the seen and unseen world. And that's what the book of Ephesians is all about. Turn with me there in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We are at the beginning of a new four-week series through this book titled Profound Mystery, Immeasurable Power. I think those twin phrases get well at the heart of the book's message and its agenda. It's a book about the profound mystery of God's eternal salvation plan A mystery now made known in Jesus Christ on the pages of this letter and in this room around us in the church. Paul, over and over again across this letter, when he talks about what he's talking about, he'll start talking about this mystery that was hidden, now made known in Christ, in the church. Look for it. And this book is written for a purpose, in order to strengthen us, his people, with power to live our lives together in the full light of this salvation, as a foretaste of what is to come when God's plans are complete in the new creation. This is the first book I read through as a teenager, and in each of the Bibles I've had over the years, it's the most worn out, it's got the most worn out pages and one it fell out. Um, and it may be that way for you all. I've talked to a number of you about this book over the last week or two, and it is a favorite among many, and for good reason. It's famous in the New Testament for its energy, its depth, its density, its breadth, its clarity about what we're to believe and how we're to live and how those relate, and for its sheer beauty. I hope that you fall in love with it over these next four weeks. Of course, I have just raised your expectations way too high for what my preaching can deliver, ever And personally, I feel intimidated by the task of making this text feel for you, through the preached word, what it should. But all of the power is God's to make it come alive. It is a heavy sword we wield this morning in picking up the book of Ephesians. It's more than I can deliver on, but I have not touched in talking this book up what God's word can deliver in the life of our church. We'll be in prayer for our church as we undergo this four-week series. Today's sermon, One Incredible Plan, is from the first chapter of the book. I'm going to read it all now. So hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. who fills all in all. Heavy sword, see what I mean? Or are two ways we could approach this text this morning. First, in the spirit of Christmas, whatever the spirit of Christmas is, we could approach it like unraveling Christmas lights. The text is full of pretty little glowing things, but it's a real mess and it's gonna be a lot of work to get them presentable. And to enjoy. And once we do have them out, we'll have them out just for a time and then we'll put them away and move on. Also, I suppose in the spirit of Christmas, we could approach it like staring at the night sky full of stars, glowing little lights, perfectly in place for us to explore, not just now, but throughout our life. And so we'll do some exploring now and then these stars will follow us, so we'll pray into every part of our life and for the rest of our life, indeed, into eternity. Well, if you're overwhelmed at the thought of understanding and digesting the first chapter of Ephesians, which we just read, that's okay. Even Paul will reach for words in this book to explain what he's trying to convey. He's going to describe his ministry as preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ he's going to pray for us to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and he's going to pray for us as we've read already to know the immeasurable greatness immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us this book is about the past the present and the future of all things in heaven and on earth visible invisible and it's about you and me where we sit in this moment With our temptations and with our trials as we hold on to God's promises in the Christian life. So, we are not unraveling Christmas lights this morning. We are staring at the stars, and it will be fun. But let's look at the ground in Ephesus first, where this letter was written. Before we look at the stars, let's look at the ground in Ephesus and the people walking around there at that time and in that region. We'll begin now with the first two verses. What we call the book of Ephesians is really a letter for God's people. A letter for God's people. Much of the New Testament, those books of the Bible given to us after Jesus was ascended and sent his spirit, are letters of correspondence between his apostles and churches. This is one of them. The first line of the letter tells us who is writing and who he's writing to. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, he writes at the command of Jesus Christ. He writes with the authority of Christ. Christ appeared to Paul, Paul, a persecutor and murderer of Christians. Christ appeared to him in his shining glory, converted Paul to be a follower of Christ, and commissioned Paul to preach the gospel of Christ throughout his life and specifically to the Gentiles, to us, to the nations. This book is an extension of Paul's commission by Jesus, personally. It's God's will for him to write this letter, and it's God's will for us as his people to read this letter. I should open our ears. I'm often tempted to gloss over these, and actually do gloss over these, greetings and letters. They sound similar from one letter to another. You sort of know what's coming. But if you were at wherever you would ever be, in the middle of whatever you'd be in the middle of, heard the words, Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. You would stop looking at your phone. You would stop thinking about whatever you were thinking about or talking to whoever you were talking to and you would submit your full attention to the one entering the room. These greetings situate the book, tell us who it's from. The book is from God himself through the pen of the Apostle Paul, who are the original readers Paul writes again in verse 1 to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're new to the Bible, saints in Ephesus is cryptic. What are saints in Ephesus? Sounds like something from some type of fairy tale book. The saints in Ephesus. Who on earth are they? What are saints? And where is Ephesus, this mysterious place? Well, what is a saint? By Saint, Paul means Christians. He's writing to those who are set apart. Saints for God. It's not a super Christian. Or special Christians after they have died that have been recognized for some special place. These are everyday believers in Jesus Christ who belong to God. That's how the language of saint is used in the Bible. He's writing to Christians. Much like you and me. Well, where is Ephesus. Well, the city is long gone. It's a city in the ancient world and its ruins lay several miles outside a major city center on the west coast of Turkey. Estimates are that around 250,000 people lived in the greater Ephesian area. This was a multi-ethnic and cosmopolitan city. Settlers from Greece, Egypt, Rome, and all over would have settled here and made up this city. For its unmatched influence in politics, commerce, and religion. It was called the Mother City of Asia. A major city port, port city at the time, literally all of the roads in the region, main roads, would have led to Ephesus. In the literature of the time, it wasn't just a trade city, but a destination city. Think New York. Now if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you'll know that this is one of the least, if not the least, occasional letters in the Bible. What that means is that Paul doesn't appear to have a particular problem uh, of sin that he's addressing or problem of doctrine that he's addressing. It's a general letter. And for that reason, um, while every letter in the New Testament is for all of us, having though an original audience, we all listen in and it's for us from God, Maybe this letter, especially if we could say so, is thought to be a circular letter. Paul would have written written it to the church at Ephesus, but for the churches in the broader region and for wide distribution and circulation. It's why some of the earliest manuscripts of this book don't even say to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus. It was sort of a fill in the blank. So you could almost see if this is true to Paul's purpose, it's probably not too far, although he wouldn't have had us in mind. Let's say the letter to the church at Desert Springs in Albuquerque. Of course, every letter is for us, but maybe this one in a special way. And yet there are some features about this book that are best understood with the specific Ephesian context in mind. So two things you need to know about Ephesus, and much of this material is from a super helpful commentator, Clinton Arnold, who's given much of his life as a scholar to this book. He's pulled together some background context from that region to help us See what Paul is getting at, at times. Very helpful. First, they worshipped the goddess Artemis. Artemis, she was preeminent. This was her city. She was even called Artemis of Ephesus. Twice a week, a procession would be made around her temple, which was just outside the city in a sacred space and stood 60 feet high with pillars that high. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The center of the world for many people at that time. She was preeminent. There were up to 50 other gods and goddesses worshipped in this region. But she was the big boss goddess of them all. Preeminent. She was also powerful. Her temple was the regional bank and her image was on the coins. She had signs of the zodiac around her neck. And her skirt was lined with ferocious looking animals. In other words... She was the boss of all of the unseen spirits and forces that you might fear. From the heavens to the underworld to the animal kingdom. She held them all in her power. Serve her and you're safe. Cross her and you're not. Spirits of injury, plague, sickness. Your life depended on. Artemis they worshipped this goddess she had power over things visible and invisible second they practiced magic practiced magic I don't know if these I'm talking about magic tricks or necessarily things that would do anything although it's associated with demonic influence that's how you would worship any god besides the one true and living god But through magic rituals and incantations, these people would attempt to control the invisible spirit world to protect themselves from evil and steer their lives. Archaeology has turned up hundreds of magic spells and sayings, curses, charms, amulets, and recipes. This area was famous for this kind of stuff. Oral stories reinforce these beliefs. There's one story of an Ephesian wrestler who is competing in the games. He had the Ephesian letters on his ankles and was winning victoriously. And when they were torn off, he lost three successive battles. You do not mess with these rituals. At the cost of your life, you give them up. Your health, your children, your fertility, your business, your life. And these rituals, these stories would have followed these people from generations, from their childhood. The goddess Artemis and magical practices were basic to life here and in the surrounding region. It's how they explained and dealt with their problems. This is how they assuaged their fears. They depended on them. So what would it look like for someone to become a Christian in this place? We'll find out as the series unfolds as we look to the book of Acts and witness these people come to Christ. But for now, we know that Paul is writing to Christians who were converted out of this and who lived in a world with these pressures and these temptations and these empty promises. The first line of the letter tells us who is writing and who he's writing to. Now, the second line, verse 2 Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants for his readers it's a customary greeting. But these are choice words. Paul knows about grace and his readers know about grace. And it will come up again. And Paul knows about peace and his readers know about peace. And it will come up again as well. This is a letter for God's people at Ephesus. And it's a letter for God's people here in Albuquerque at our church So we've been looking at the ground in Ephesus to get a sense for the setting and the context. And now let's look at the stars. The rest of the chapter falls nicely into two sections. From verse 3 to 14, Paul praises God for his plan. And verses 15 through 23, he prays for his readers. So now verses 3 to 14, a plan for God's praise. A plan for God's praise. When most of us begin by saying in a sentence, we're usually trying to distill what we're trying to say down to a simple sentence, a simple idea or set of ideas to pull it all together in an understandable way. If you tell somebody, can you put that in a sentence for me? It might mean that they were being long-winded. I get asked from time to time to put that in a sentence. I'm a verbal processor, which is a cover for undisciplined speech sometimes, so um, I tend to talk and go on and on, so I'll get back to my notes. Um, if, somebody, if you said to somebody, if you could put that in a sentence for me, and then they gave you a paragraph in a sentence, you would say, that's not fair. You would say, Clint Moore, that's not fair. If, I, if, you, uh, if you, I told him I would do this, and he laughed. If you go to the church's website and click ministries, and then click, uh, there's a video there where, where a number of ministry leaders were asked in a sentence to say what their ministry was about. The first 15 minutes is Clint. Um, so, uh, he's a funny guy. He's not even here to hear it. Um, look down at your Bibles. Verses 3 to 14... That's a sentence in the original language. How about that? Not only is it broken up into a number of sentences for us, but I think it's broken up into two paragraphs for us. What is Paul doing? Well, Paul breaks the rule of normal writing, not because he's a bad writer or because he's inconsiderate. He breaks the rule, as far as I can tell, because he can't help himself. And because he's brilliant, it's actually a great sentence. Paul is bursting with praise to God. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's a statement of praise to God and for good reason. He's given us every spiritual blessing. These blessings are spiritual. They're eternal in the heavenly places. They're Trinitarian, they're from the Father, they're in Christ, and they're of the Spirit. And this is a summary of all that Paul is about to say. So you have a nice summary sentence right here at the head of this section. You can't read long in the New Testament without noticing, by the way, the deep Trinitarian fabric of the New Testament. Trinity, Trinitarian being just a word to get at the clear scriptural truth that there is one true and living God and yet you clearly have three distinct persons actors in the new testament that are not different manifestations of one God but are different persons three in one father son and spirit each of them worshipped each of them involved in our redemption each of them existing eternally together in fellowship with one another and if, there's a distinct, if their distinctive and complementary roles are ever worth reflection, they sure are when it comes to the plan of redemption. And Paul reflects distinctly on different members of the Trinity as he unfolds this reflection on God's plan. And it's a way of organizing the material from one side to the other. So our outline will follow that pattern, Father, Son, and Spirit. Hopefully that will make it, you can see this pattern in the stars maybe, pointing out the Big Dipper. Paul bursts into praise first for a plan designed by the Father. A plan designed by the Father. Verse 3 through 6. The Father planned to bless us way, way, way long time ago. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him according to the purpose of his will. He chose us in him. Paul is saying exactly what it sounds like he is saying. Before he made the world, he chose a people for himself. The Bible is not afraid of this. It comes right out of Paul's pen first without any apology and in the direction of praise to God. And it might sound difficult to understand to which I say amen. It is difficult to understand. It raises questions. The nature of our salvation. What's my, my responsibility if God has chosen me? Did I have a choice to choose him to believe? It raises questions about the nature of prayer. If he's sovereign over history, why pray? Questions about the nature of evangelism. What's the use if God decides who is saved in the end, anyways? These are questions we ask if we think. And it's called doing theology. You take the data of the Bible and put it together to recognize where the questions are and where the tension is and what we know for sure and what is uncertain. This seems plain to me, but I won't say that it was easy to rest in confidence that this is what the Bible says. And there's really no one who's come to embrace this doctrine That got there easy. You wrestle with the Bible. Welcome to Christianity and knowing a God who's beyond our imagination. But keep a few things in mind. In terms of our responsibility before God. The same Paul who wrote this speaks in clear moral terms when it comes to our guilt. As sinners, he calls us children of wrath in the next chapter. In terms of prayer, he's going to spend almost a whole chapter of this book pleading with God in prayer for us. And in terms of evangelism, Paul will end his letter with a request that the words may be given to him and opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He prays for God's help and in other chapters he prays for. In other books he prays for a door for the gospel. Pleads with God for the salvation of sinners. There is no apparent contradiction in his mind between these two commitments. The sovereignty of God and human agency. In fact, these things actually fuel Our responsibility, prayers, and evangelism. We work out our own salvation in fear and trembling because God is at work to complete what he started, to will and to work for his good pleasure. He hears our prayers and we pray to him precisely because we know that he's not just hoping with us things work out this way or that, but we trust him and we know that he is over every atom of space and minute of time. And we preach the gospel in the most unlikely places in the face of the greatest insane odds because we know that God is shining His light into the hearts of unbelievers, and that He's gathering for himself a people from every tribe and language and nation, and He will do it as surely as He has promised, and He is not dependent on us. In other words, these ideas are compatible, and there's no place better to see this than the cross. We need God sovereign over every minute of time and atom of space if we're to have a cross. And yet the cross was an act of great injustice in as much as it was an act of great love. Here's from one of the first sermons ever after Jesus' resurrection. In Acts 2, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Guilty men. And in chapter 4 of Acts Truly in this city were gathered together against Jesus, who, listen to all the guilty parties, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These things that go together, mysterious though they are, it's something we can believe even if we don't perfectly understand it. So embrace the tension where God leaves tension and don't be surprised that there are things we find out about God and his world that are hard for our minds to reach. But don't just embrace the tension, embrace the truth. This this is not here in Paul's writing to trouble us or to stall us, but to stir up praise in our hearts. So let's stare into the heart of the God who chooses from eternity to figure him out and as much as we can from these pages. Why did he do it? Here's one reason. Our salvation, verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He wants us to stand before him blameless and we are blame worthy as we will find out next week in chapter 2 in full color. We were not blameless and we will God will finish what he starts in us and we will stand before him one day blameless and holy set apart for him. There's another reason, adoption. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He doesn't choose us to mow his lawn like robot servants. He chooses us to sit at his table as sons and daughters with God as our father. No small thing that he would call himself father, a title used on a loop throughout this book that we can't miss. There's intimacy there and God wants it with us. We have a number of adopted children in our midst at this church. Beautiful children. Sown into beautiful families. Something like our legal adoption context that we have here would be the background for this word. And in the first century, there was a such thing as legal adoption where a son would, as a son would, receive an inheritance from his father and have all the rights of a child. Theologically speaking, there's a whole history of God doing this kind of thing. He chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. He chose Moses, and then he chose David. It even calls David his son. Adoption. And there's another reason why God did this. If you caught it, it's not a throwaway word in the Bible ever. No filler word. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In love, God's choice of us from the foundation of the world is born out of a heart of great love for us. Don't miss that. And there's another reason yet. All of this, verse 6, is to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glorious grace. How does his election and adoption lead us to praise God for his grace? Why not just his love or his sovereignty? Precisely because it's in God's sovereign adopting love that we see just how much our salvation depends on him and just how little it depends on us. That's what grace means. Did we not believe? Yes, but what is believing but receiving what is given? Marvel at the grace of God. And how is this possible that this God, this holy God, would make some to stand before him, holy and blameless, who are not holy and blameless, who would take some who are his enemies to be his sons and daughters? How is this? Well, have you noticed a line on repeat in this book? Ephesians is one of those books where you need a lot of different colored highlighters if you're going to try to trace themes, because there's a bunch of them and they keep appearing. Save your newest highlighter with the most ink for this one. In Him. In Christ. Through Christ. You cannot read a sentence, a line, without seeing this. It's in Christ that any of this is possible. And so Paul bursts with praise for a plan that was designed by the Father. And now in verse 7 through 12, Paul bursts with praise for a plan that was carried out by the Son. Carried out by the Son, we glorify our triune God when we speak about Him and His work in specific ways. He's not flat. We should speak about the Spirit differently than we speak about the Son differently than we speak about the Father. When the Father designed this plan, chose from eternity, and it's the purpose of His will that led all this to come about. But this is not in competition with the Spirit and the Son. They're all in this together. But they had distinct roles. And the son is the one who makes it possible. Who comes on his mission to go to a cross. Verse 7. It's in him that we have redemption. A slave at this time could be purchased out of slavery. Redeemed from slavery. In the Old Testament, Israel was enslaved to Egypt and to Pharaoh. And God bought them back. Brought them out. Redeemed them to himself from slavery to Egypt to the Egyptians and how how did he do this through the blood of a lamb in part the angel of death passed over every home in Egypt and killed the firstborn children the children of Israel did not die because they killed a lamb in the place of that firstborn and marked their doorposts with blood the angel of death passed over Blood was key to their own redemption. So verse seven, in him we have redemption through Jesus' blood. Death is required for sin and we've got a lot of sin. And so we're redeemed through his blood. That's how it's possible. A cross was required. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There's no way to stand before God blameless without sin being taken care of. And Jesus does it. I grew up riding my bike around all kinds of undeveloped property, and every now and then you would come across a no trespassing sign, and you just hope you're on the right side of it. You didn't know what would happen if you crossed that sign. Um, lots of stories. Someone recently jumped the president's fence. Of course, we all know that story. You could get shot if you do that, by the way, even though he didn't. Um, or mauled by a dog. There may not be a sign on the fence at the White House that says no trespassing. This is the president's house. Uh, but you should know better. And all of us are born as sinners and as those made in God's image, which is the sense of what's right and wrong. We know what pleases mom and dad and we're in no mood that as soon as we can kick back and do what we want, we are doing it. Sinners. Trespassers. And God deals with our trespasses in Jesus they are forgiven which is pretty much amazing more amazing than the president taking a bullet or a sentence for the trespasser of his own property much more amazing than that no wonder Paul says in verse 7 this is according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us this is not hyperbole he is reaching for words and he's using all he's got lavish grace And if our minds aren't blown away by what God is doing specifically for us through Jesus, in the space of two verses, Paul zooms way out so that you can see the entire universe and all of human history from one side to the other. To say that through Christ, God, verse 9, is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth on the pages of the old testament it is a mystery as to how this will all come together and where this is all going we know that god's a son of Eve will defeat the serpent that god will turn back the curse but sin is everywhere and especially in his people it's a mess god's promises are that everything will be set right and he will sit as king over his people the holy people how are we going to get there and then jesus shows up and then he goes to a cross And then he is raised. And the mystery of God's plan, previously hidden, is now revealed. And it's revealed in the church. He will say in verse 22, He put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And it's true now, but in the fullness of time, that plan will be complete. And the church is a foretaste. Our gathering here is a foretaste of what God will ultimately do in the end. And the rest of this book will work out where we fit in that plan. Verse 11 and 12, we have a beautiful summary. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Don't miss that refrain focus on that word inheritance one disadvantage to a really long sentence which we have here is that some moments in a sentence like this are grammatically confusing this word inheritance here could refer some translations go one or one of two ways to our inheritance or it could refer to God's inheritance in us most commentators I don't have to settle this both are realities would say this refers to God's inheritance in us So let's go with it. The Old Testament speaks this way, that God redeems for himself a people, for himself, a possession for himself, a treasured possession, an inheritance. So consider the meaning of this. We here are God's treasure. You may not feel like you're God's treasure. You may look in the mirror And know what's in your heart. And may not feel like a treasure of God. God knows what's in your heart better. And he knows the ugliness in this church better than you know it. If you know some of it. And we are his treasure. We're his prized possession. Redeemed. In love. Adopted. Why are you here? We might ask one another in the new creation. Just to hear each other say. Because of God's glorious grace. That's why. How is that even possible? Sinner, well, my sins were forgiven. How is that possible? Because God came down and died on a cross for me. That's how. And why you? Well, not because I was good enough to wake up one day and realize that God was worth it. No, I was lost in my sin. God chose me before the foundation of the world. He opened my eyes and my name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. It's all of grace. And this time of struggle, when we don't feel like fully adopted children, we don't feel like we're the sons we should be. This time of struggle is a part of God's plan too. The process of our adoption is fixed, but it's not yet complete. The court case is cleared Parental rights have been transferred, but we're still in our crib waiting for the completion of our process. When we began Carson and Madeline's adoptions, this is how it worked. Court cases cleared, everything was locked up legally, and we were their parents legally in the eyes of the Ethiopian government, and yet our children were in the same place, too young even to know that anything had happened, even if they were greeted the next morning with the news. My son had a picture of us, Christy and I, hanging over his bed. He'd see it, he'd point to it and coo at it. He was told that was daddy and he'd hit it, say, daddy, daddy. Not even sure, frankly, that he knew what a daddy was. And then we show up. One day, we'll be together. Though we aren't with the Lord yet, he is nonetheless with us by his spirit. And so third, Paul bursts with praise for a plan secured by the spirit. A plan secured by the spirit Verse 13, in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And the third time you've heard this, to the praise of his glory. That's why this is a praise for God's plan. Three times to the praise of God's glory. Now praising God for the work of the Spirit promised by Jesus, the promised Spirit Before Jesus left, promising that he would send his spirit, it was to their advantage that he actually leave because his spirit would enter into them. And promised before that in the prophets in the Old Testament that the spirit would come with the coming of the king. The Spirit is our guarantee. Like an engagement ring is to a wedding, the Holy Spirit is to our future union with Christ. Not a patch on a plan that isn't quite coming together as planned, although it may feel like that at times. The Holy Spirit is an integral part of the plan. Does all of this sound completely foreign to you? Maybe you've come to church. Maybe you're very familiar around church. Maybe you read the Bible, but you haven't known God as Father. You don't have an interest in the Spirit. This is new. The cross has not been in the middle of you the way you think about Christianity and your relationship with God. You haven't thought that you needed blood your eyes are sort of opening to some things here. How can you get in? I remember as in going to church for a while early in high school and asking somebody, "How do I become one of you?" Can, some, can you distill it for me? And my friend preached the gospel to me. I think I believed walking from one building to another at youth group. At that moment, I rejected nothing he said, and he preached the gospel, and I believed. Perhaps I was a believer already, I am not sure. But God was working in my heart to want to believe whatever He said and to want Him and to trust a cross for it. I pray He's doing that in your life. What should you do? Verse 12 In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him. It wasn't always the case that Paul knew God and trusted a cross. It wasn't always the case that his readers did but it became the case when they heard the word of truth, the good news of salvation through a cross and adoption in God's love and believed. So believe. Worried about being elect? No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, Jesus says. If you want to know God you find yourself believing the stuff on the page in front of you that may be your answer god calls you to come and you come you're in trouble if you run and that's how you know you're on the other side of things but don't worry about that first doctrine we discussed worry about uh respond to the call to believe Artemis is a fraud and so is every other lie of the devil we believe and every other thing we trust in in life and in death. Christ is not a lie. He is not a fraud. For those of you who who have heard and believed, what can we do but pray for God's help for ourselves and for one another? And that's exactly what Paul does. He could not help in writing this letter to burst forth with praise. And he's done a pretty good job for a sentence, right, of distilling an infinite amount of beauty into a sentence. So actually he's done a good job of putting it in a sentence for us. He couldn't help but bursting with praise and now he can't help but pray and it's really the only proper thing to do now. And so we see in verses 15 through 23, a prayer for God's power. He begins, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is praying all the time for them. All the time. It's a way of life. Like we look at our phones and check our email. He's asking God to help these people know God. He prays, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened enlightened to see him for who he is that the eyes of your heart may be opened that we would grow in the knowledge of him the prayer is that we would know God and know him well is this what your life is about is it about knowing God and knowing God well and better every day that's why we read the Bible not because we have to but we have to but because we have to know God better it's a means to an end Not facts about God, but God. It's one thing to know what a wife is. It's another thing to know a woman is your wife. The eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. It was two years ago, a man came in this church. The Lord was kind for us to intersect. And we went uh, out to lunch. He had grown up in the church and heard the gospel, very familiar with the Bible. Had a story to tell me about a life coming undone at every level and in some fantastically dramatic ways, in situations where the way forward wasn't clear. I wasn't so sure I was listening to a believer, thinking about how I'll steer this and what questions I'll ask and things I need to learn as we talk and get to know one another. Then he interrupts himself and he says, by the way, I'm telling you this, but it's a distraction at this point. You may have some things to say and we can deal with that later. What I need to know, and he picks up the Bible on, on, on the table and says, I need to know how to know God. I have got to get right with God. His crisis and the circumstances of his life had brought into perfect focus his absolute rock bottom need to be right with God. Praise the Lord for his work in that man's life who knows the Lord, at least now. Over a burrito at Vic's Daily Cafe. A magic burrito. Uh, They're very good. Knowing God well requires knowing three things deep down. Paul prays that you would know what is the hope to which he's called you. In other words, that you would get it. That you would really feel and get everything that he has said in that long sentence about what God has done. That you would feel blessed by every spiritual blessing. Not distracted by smaller lights on the ground. But you'd see the stars in the sky of his redeeming plan. And know the mystery revealed in your own life. He prays that they would know their hope and that we would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We're not perfect or a pretty bunch on our own, but God has made us beautiful and we're beautiful to him. You, church, are more beautiful to God than any mountain he made or any sunset he gives us. This right here, this meeting... There are times in my life when God gives me deep spiritual joy. I hope you know what this is. Standing right there, Christmas Eve, singing with you all. Room full, choir up here, you all out here. I'm looking around. One advantage to being a pastor is you know a whole lot of stuff that's going on in this room. You may look around and think that everything's perfect in everyone else's life. No, everyone is a wreck here, um, uh, one degree or another, or has been through stuff. you got people dealing with cancer who've been through it, who have spouses dying, who have spouses who died, who have family members who died, who are dealing with incredible temptation that's about to shred their life, and they're confessing it. There's some amazing things going on on a daily and a weekly basis around this city represented in the people in this room right now. You stand there singing the stuff that we sing about Jesus and his coming and death and eternity and it can't help but move you. It cannot help but move you. We are God's inheritance, his work, and we're beautiful to him. And Paul prays for one more thing and it's something we must pray for ourselves and it's something he'll pray for again. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? It's the power that God's working in us. It's immeasurable. It's not the power to win at a sport like pole vaulting or basketball or football. A lot of the power verses in the Bible are sort of used that way. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to eat this giant steak. Um, and when that t-shirt, you know this is, not, this is about, here's what it's about, here's what it's power for. Power for what? A lot harder to, than anything you might try to do physically, by the way. It's the power to really believe and keep on believing in Jesus. When processions around Artemis' temple are going on weekly, and your family is doing incantations And the hope that God will bless them with fertility or business or health. You are not trusting in these old things anymore. It is hard to trust and trust your life and your eternity to Jesus. And this is the power to believe and to really, literally live for Jesus. It's why he'll pray for the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. Because out of that love we love, and without it we can't. The devil's schemes are scheming, and his temptations are powerful, and there are things that you are tempted to do. That no matter what you can design at work, or do at work, or do with your hands, or lift with your arms, you feel powerless over the temptations of your flesh. The devil is a schemer, and frankly, we are no match for him. But he is no match for God and God's power. And if God's power is at work within us, he is no match for us. And so Paul will say, be strong in the strength of the Lord. We don't wrestle against physical things, but unseen things. And here's a very concrete, confidence-giving illustration of the kind of power God's talking about. Verse 20, the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come as well. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Jets are pretty powerful and they can carry a pretty powerful payload. It can take a lot of life. Neither jets nor the brilliant people who can design them and build them can bring life back from the dead, which is precisely what God can do. Artemis couldn't. Spells couldn't. Paul prays for us, not from a preoccupation with earthly circumstances, but from a preoccupation with the exalted Christ, which is exactly what we need. So know your hope, Read this chapter again before the day is out. Know your hope. Know the inheritance that you are to God as his treasure. And know the power that is at work within you. He is a great designer and we're proof of what only he can make. So may God grant us to be a faithful foretaste to the invisible powers of the mystery of Christ and his descending foot upon their head, because all things will in time be under his feet when the mystery of God's salvation plan is complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we sure need help to feel what we're supposed to feel after reading a chapter like this. Thick with ideas, and declarations of realities that are true in us if we're in Christ. We need eyes wide open. And when you, we need your help to open our eyes to see these things as true and to feel them all the way down. The eyes of our heart enlightened. That we may know our hope. That we may know just how loved we are by you. How lavish your grace is. And that we may know the power that you are working in your people to demonstrate your wisdom to the world, seen and unseen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.